You are listening to Your Practice Made Perfect, support, protection, and advice for practicing medical professionals. Brought to you by SVMIC. Hello, welcome to our podcast. My name is Brian Fortenberry, and on this episode, we are going to be discussing something that is prevalent in much of the country and certainly more so in some areas than others. It's the ongoing opioid crisis. And joining us today to discuss this and give us some incredible insight is Dr. Rhett Blake. Dr. Blake, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Dr. Blake, really, before we even delve into the subject matter, tell us a little bit about yourself, about your practice and your work in the opioid area. Well, I'm a pain physician. I practice out of Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I've been doing primary pain multidisciplinary practice for the past 10 years. Then we you know, see a lot of different pain patients and we treat them with different medications, injections, physical therapy, and, and a variety of different tools to try to hopefully help people deal with some of their chronic issues. You speak of this multimodality when it comes to helping people through their pain. One of the things that kind of to me is a big thing is this opioid crisis that we face. It's really a narcotic and patients sometimes they're wanting just to feel better from the pain aspect and they're becoming more aware of the issues that can creep in whenever they start using pain medicines that are narcotics. But what are some of the risks of opioids that patients really need to be aware of if they're in a situation where they're going to start using those for pain medication? Well, opioids have a lot of different risks, and that's why when we talk about the best ways to treat pain, opioids are not the first choice, and they are one of many different ways to treat pain. And one of the main reasons is because of the risk, and opioids have risk of overdose and death and addiction, and there are multiple different side effects that opioids can cause, as well as the potential for abuse and misuse of the medications. And they are vast, right? I mean, there is deep risk within this. What are some of the specific risks in the maybe the overdose area or addiction or, or side effects that patients really need to be aware of? Well, everyone is different. Every individual is exactly that, an individual. And so no two people respond exactly the same way. So there are a lot of different factors that make one person more or less likely to have an overdose event than another person. Age is one of those. Obviously, the older a person is, the more likely or the more susceptible they are to the effects of medications. Dose. For someone who's taking a low dose of opioid, that's less likely to cause an overdose event than someone that's taking high-dose opioids. And then there are issues of other different drugs that people can use. There are a lot of different CNS depressants out there, and some of them are fairly benign. Uh, Gabapentin is a very commonly used neuropathic pain medication that makes people more likely to have overdose events. Benzodiazepines like Valium or Xanax make people more likely to have overdose events, especially when they're combined with opioids and then any different CNS depressing agent. And some of these are as simple as antidepressant medications. And then there are medications like antibiotics that can affect the metabolism of other medications. 
and cause those to increase or decrease over time. So different medication combinations can make people more likely or more susceptible to overdose. And the different illnesses, someone that has you know a long history of emphysema or another pulmonary or, or, or lung disease, obstructive sleep apnea, you know, someone that snores a lot and has some obstruction in their upper airway, that obviously puts someone at a higher risk for an overdose event. People that have different metabolism, whether they have renal function that impairs how they get rid of a medication or if they have liver dysfunction that impairs how they metabolize a medication, all of those different things can affect the way a patient processes a medication and may make them susceptible to overdose. And that can even change within an individual patient. If someone has been on a medication that they've been stable on for a long time and then they get acute pneumonia, well, now they have an additional new pulmonary problem that they didn't have a week ago or a month ago or a year ago that can now make them susceptible to a dose of medication that they were previously stable on. So there are a number of different factors that play into someone's risk for overdose. And the interesting thing to me is often we hear overdose and the first thing that in a lot of people's mind they go straight to is an intentional overdose where someone is a drug addict or purposefully just trying to get a high has taken too much and overdose. But what I'm hearing from you is there are so many other factors that a lot of these people that are affected by these overdoses, their intention may not at all been to try to get high. It was just a combination or how their body is set up. Is that correct? Both of those are possibilities. When we look at accidental overdose deaths, they do exclude intentional suicides, but they do include overdoses from people using recreational drugs, even things like heroin, because even someone that has a drug addiction doesn't intentionally overdose. They don't die on purpose. They're just overwhelmed by the addiction that they're suffering with. But there are a lot of people that are just taking their medication for pain that can have not in the course of addiction, but you still have the possibility of overdose. Tom Petty is probably the classic example of that. And I don't know the details of that story, but it seems that he accidentally overdosed on chronic pain medication. So now there may be more to that story, but that does seem to be an example of that. Whenever you start looking at a patient that comes into your practice, it's hard to know really when they walk in the door, if they're going to be susceptible to overdose. Is that correct? It's very difficult, and you never really know, and so you always try to use universal precautions and caution everyone about the risk of that and make sure that, you know, if you're going to prescribe opioids, that the patient is well aware that that's a risk. Now, there are different ways to screen that because most overdoses occur as a result of or in the process of addiction, and so there are some ways to screen for the risk of addiction, and there are some ways to screen for the risk of abuse and misuse. But you're right, it is difficult for physicians to identify that. When we look at whether or not physicians are good at screening for the potential for abuse, there was one study that says that when we just use the quote-unquote eyeball method of is my patient at high risk for opioid abuse, 
the physicians were wrong about 95% of the time. Now, that was just one study. Most of the studies say that we're wrong about 50% of the time, and that's not an implication of physicians not caring or not doing what they should be doing. It's just that that's an extraordinarily difficult task to look at a patient and identify whether someone is at high risk for abuse of an opioid or any other medication. It's a tough thing to do. There's often a lot to that story. There's the overdose that we've talked about, the addiction as well, but we mentioned early on about side effects. What are some of the side effects that opioids can cause? Are they common? How common? And what do people have to be aware of? Uh, Opioids have lots of side effects, and some of them are very common. Certain side effects like constipation will happen extremely commonly, and also things like other GI side effects just general stomach upset as well as sedation. And again, if you take enough of of medication, it will cause sedation. Now, what constitutes enough is very different from everyone. But there are also different cognitive and motor impairment that can occur from opioids. Opioids over the long term can change hormone levels like testosterone, and they can even over the long term cause what's usually referred to as opioid-induced hyperalgesia, which means if you've been on this medication for a long time, things that wouldn't normally hurt start to hurt more because you've altered your nervous system's kind of normal response to pain. Wow. Those are things that you don't often think about. Certainly making things more painful when you're on an opioid, you don't think about that. Is that fairly common? I don't think it's very common, but it certainly is possible. And it's something that people need to be aware of, especially when people have been on high doses for a long period of time. And it's more common the longer the opioid use is, and it's more common the higher the dose is. I got you. So if someone is a chronic pain patient and have been on these opioids for a longer period of time, these side effects could be more prevalent once their body has really built up the opioid is what you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah. I kind of want to go back to addiction for a minute because I personally have known people before that have had procedures done and the doctor prescribes them a narcotic and opioid to help control the pain on a short period uh, time after the procedure. And they were incredibly nervous about taking it because they worried so much about, I've never had anything like this and I don't want to become addicted to it. What do we really need to know about that in regards to opioids as far as the addiction part? Certainly, opioids are potentially addictive substances. That is something that we all know that they do run that risk of true addiction. And when we're talking about addiction, I guess it's probably important that you understand the difference between dependence and addiction. So dependence is just if you take a substance for a long period of time and then you stop suddenly, you get withdrawal symptoms. So that's uh. not the same thing as addiction. Addiction is a chronic brain disease that involves multiple different central nervous system malfunctions that change the reward pathway and it's symbolized by a craving of the medication, a, a loss of control over the, over your use of the medication and continuing to use the medication even though it's clearly harming you. And when you talk about the chances of that occurring, in chronic pain patients and people that take opioids for a long period of time, most studies, the rate is about 10%. Although 
although there are some studies that show that addiction can be as high as 25% in people that take opioids over a long term. But most, it's around 10%. But 10% is a very significant number, especially when you consider how frequently opioids are used and how often people have a broken bone or a surgery or some other event that needs them to have acute pain medication. That is so interesting to hear the difference in addiction and dependency. Is there one that is more prevalent in our society than the other? I don't know about that. Dependence basically is if you take enough of an opioid for a long enough period of time, the incidence of dependence is going to be 100%. That's just going to happen if you take enough of it. Just like nicotine. If you smoke cigarettes for a long time and then you stop, you get withdrawal symptoms. Right. Addiction is very common. Of course, you know, nicotine is the most commonly addictive substance, but alcohol is the second, and then opioids are probably right behind that. But the social impact of opioids can be a lot more significant and happens faster. So, and why some people get it and others don't, there are lots of different factors. There are genetic factors, there are social factors, there are environmental factors. Addiction definitely is the biopsychosocial model of how that develops and why it develops in certain people more so than others. Well, this is certainly a hot topic issue around the country, and it's been politicized a lot as well. So therefore, the the CDC and, for instance, even in the state we're in, the Tennessee Department of Health, have guidelines recommending screening of patients for the risk of abuse. What is abuse and how do they identify that? And how is that different than what we've talked about? So abuse would be a warning sign for addiction, right? So an abuse is different than misuse in the sense that misuse is if I prescribe you a medication for pain and I say you can take up to three pills of this medication for pain per day and you take it four times a day. You're still taking it for pain, but three a day wasn't enough and so you took it a fourth time. That's misuse of the medication, but you're still taking the medication for for its intended purpose, which is for analgesia or to minimize pain. Abuse is very different that instead of taking it for pain, you are taking it for its euphoric effect. And opioids have the potential to cause euphoria in some people. They don't cause euphoria in all people. Most people, they take opioids and it makes them feel nauseated. But it helps their pain, but they don't like the way it makes them feel. But in some patients, they take an opioid and it makes them feel great, buzzed or high. And so people take it for the same reason that they would use any other recreational drug, whether that's marijuana or cocaine or alcohol. So it can cause a euphoric effect. And so if you're taking a medication that was prescribed for pain, but instead you're taking it because you like the euphoria that it causes, well, that's abuse as opposed to misuse. So it's the reason that you're taking it. If you are abusing a medication and you like the euphoric effect of it, then you're obviously much more likely to develop an addiction. That stands to reason. And I'm assuming the patients that come back to you and go, man, this medicine makes me feel terrible. I just can't take it. I can't function. I just don't like it. Those are a lot less likely to be the addicts versus the people that say, boy, I get so much done when I'm on this medicine and it makes me feel better. Those are the patients you probably obviously have to watch out for, right? Right. And there are multiple different screening tools where you can screen a patient for their potential risk. 
there are probably uh, almost a dozen of those, whether it's the SOAP or the COM or the ORT or the PMQ or the DIRE or the BRI. These are all acronyms and abbreviations for different questionnaires. And so, for instance, if I was going to hand out the SOAP score, which is the screener and opioid assessment for patients with pain, and that's what the SOAP stands for, they fill out this form and it gives me a number. And I say, oh, well, this number is very low or this number is very high. And these are very useful. And if you're prescribing opioids in the state of Tennessee, they are required and they're strongly recommended by the CDC. So if you are prescribing opioids, you need to figure out which one of these makes the most sense in your clinical practice and use that. But they're also self-administered questionnaires, so they are not sacrosanct. So if a patient wants to lie on them, they can simply misrepresent the truth on a questionnaire. So it's not the end-all, be-all of risk assessment. You have to look at the overall clinical picture, which is looking at the patient's history of opioid use. Have they been to pain clinics? Have they gotten kicked out of pain clinics? Look at the results of their urine drug screen. Look at things on the prescription drug monitoring database. Those are all parts of this puzzle that give you an idea whether this patient is low, medium, or high risk for opioid abuse. And you can get more detailed than that if you would like to criminal records, history of DUIs. Obviously, the more of this kind of behavior that you have, the higher risk for opioids, even if it's not necessarily opioid specific. If you have a history of addiction to one substance, it makes you more likely to develop an addiction to another substance. So those screening tools are very useful, but they aren't the whole picture. This is such a complex issue. There is no simple answers. And as I mentioned before, the fact that it has become such a political hot topic and it is something that everyone seems to agree on, that there is an opioid epidemic and it is such a problem and we have all of this information and certainly patients are more sensitive to it now. Physicians, obviously, much more sensitive to it and the implications to their practice. And there's so much information out there. What do we do with all of this? How do we process all of this information in the world we live in today? When you're assessing whether a patient is a low, a medium, or a high risk for opioid use, if someone is a high risk patient and you're a primary care physician and you're not in a position to provide the appropriate monitoring for opioids, you probably just don't want to write that patient opioids at all. And maybe even if someone is a moderate risk, maybe you don't want to write that patient opioids at all. Maybe you want to refer to a specialist who is more able to handle the appropriate level of monitoring. And so the higher risk a patient is, the less likely a physician should be to prescribe them opioids unless they have extenuating circumstances where they have severe painful pathology, multiple back surgeries, severe trauma that has caused, again, multiple different orthopedic surgeries or other diseases that are known to cause pain. And if that's the case and you have no choice but to write opioids, you have to monitor that patient very closely and you have to see them more frequently. You have to perform more urine drug screens. You have to perform more pill counts to make sure that that patient is not accidentally, you know, walking down that slippery slope towards addiction. Well, Dr. Blake, thank you so much for your time and all of this incredible information in a very crucial topic that we face today in the medical community. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Your Practice Made Perfect with your host, Brian Fortenberry. 
Listen to more episodes, subscribe to the podcast, and find show notes at svmic.com slash podcast. The contents of this podcast are intended for informational purposes only and do not constitute legal advice. Policyholders are urged to consult with their personal attorney for legal advice, as specific legal requirements may vary from state to state and change over time. All names in the case have been changed to protect privacy. 